How can I Habermas you if I can barely Habermas myself? I asked myself that several points while reading this third part of Legitimation Crisis and hopefully have been able to overcome these deficiencies. I've Habermas myself and can maybe Habermas you, listener. Maybe our listeners can Habermas you, Alex. Maybe they can Habermas me. It's true. I'm, I'm open to being Habermas. I'm Habermasable. Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. This is for you, dearest patrons, inner circle people, the Reading Club. This is the second block of the Reading Club of the Year, of which we're doing Legitimation Crisis by Jürgen Habermas. And specifically now we're turning to part three and the last third of the book, um, which is, well, it's a doozy. It's a doozy. George. Uh, yeah, it is. So first, first part, a social scientific concept of crisis. This was quite a lot of theoretical ground clearing um you know we talked about some of the um, i guess this this concepts of crisis that have mass outlines all of that kind of background w- work i think the second part was where it really kind of got got cooking crisis tendencies in advanced capitalism Habermas's model of of capitalist society the different sorts of um economic rationality legitimation and motivation crises in those um sorts of societies and then Today, we're on the third part, appropriately, on the logic of legitimation problems. So this, I think, there's a lot to talk about in this. There's a lot to think about. And just quickly, I guess, to run through the chapters for listeners, um, it starts off with Max Weber's concept of legitimation and then a kind of classical Habermasian prose here, the relation of practical questions to truth. Then he continues, the model of the suppression of generalizable interests, Um then we have the end of the individual, question mark. That's a good one. Uh, chapter five is then complexity and democracy. And finally, partiality for reason. So as we've experienced in the first two parts, there's a lot in each of those chapters and consequently an awful lot in, in even one part of this very dense book, um, but some really interesting questions and a lot to discuss. So my take on this is that the overarching concern this part of the book is the relation of legitimation to truth or to put it in more Habermasian terms um, quote the continued existence of a truth dependent mode of socialization constitutive of society so pretty big questions there truth and legitimation essentially so okay great um I think it's fair to say this part moves back to the more theoretical and abstract questions that we covered in the first part after the more political content of part two, which focused, as I said, on those kind of crisis tendencies in advanced capitalism. And so gave us a, some ideas of different sorts of crises, which is always kind of interesting to read and discuss. Um, and so I think it's probably fair to say for me, at least it felt a little bit less relevant, perhaps less gripping at time, less gripping at times than previous parts. Was I alone in this? Was this, was this more tough going um, than the previous part? Or was, did you guys just 
breeze through it with um, intellectual ease and uh, glide on the on the the waves of Habermasian prose. If that <laughs> mixed metaphors there. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever glided on those waves. Um, if you're uh, a surfer, you glide on waves. You do indeed. But An I idea don't surfer. I don't. The... Oh my god, that is maybe one of the worst things I've ever heard on a pod. Um, no, the I think I was definitely habermastered by this section. I don't know if that's kind of just because by virtue of coming to the end of the um, coming to the end of the book. Or by the, you know, density. I wouldn't say, you know, it's all, there's some parts of it that are kind of um, gripping and brilliant. And even the more kind of abstract kind of formulations about the relationship between, um, you know, how kind of practical social questions, how they relate themselves to questions of truth, even when formulated in his incredibly dense kind of sentences, nonetheless, there's something there which is valid and important and it's, you know, it's hard to see how you could frame a question like that more succinctly either. You know, when you think about it, about, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Habermas could write more clearly. I mean, I guess we all could, but also there are some phrases which are just, con, you know, they just convey difficult ideas and it's hard to see how they could be done better. One thing that I think would help is probably more examples. So it's not so much the difficulty of the language as the kind of aridity with respect to concrete illustration. Could you give us an example of a time when he doesn't give an example? Well, just the one that you mentioned yourself, this, um, where he says this uh, continued existence of a truth-dependent mode of socialization constitutive of society. Or you know, when he talks about normative structures, times. right? What is yeah, a normative structure? Yeah, you've got to read structure? that a few times. Yeah, indeed, yeah. You've got to read that a few times to understand what's being said there. Yeah, I think you're always like teetering on the brink of of comprehension and complete, like being being completely <laughs> in the dark. You know, so you're like you're always you're grabbing on, you know, and you have this idea of like normative normative institution. Okay, you you think you have an idea of what that is, but you're not sure, and you're going along, and then you he throws something else in, and then you're a bit like, whoa, I'm trying to hold, you know, keep these plates spinning at the same time without any kind of concreteness. And if you just gave an example one of these spinning plates would be, you know, firmly attached to the stick and you could hold on to that confidently and while worrying about the other spinning plates, you know. Um, I, I think, like, I th there's basically, like, three things that make this really difficult, in my opinion. I think one is the just the level of abstraction that he's dealing with um, and, and that he's working at, um, which I think, to a certain extent, there's no getting away from that um, and because he's trying to be fairly comprehensive about how society functions, about how social systems function. The other thing is that, He's often turning inward to, um, and this is certainly the case in the third part, turning inward to academic debate. So he's dealing with and engaging with systems theory, with particularly the work of Nicholas Luhmann. And you're like, okay, but I'm not, I don't know the work of Nicholas Luhmann well. I don't know what Habermas's position is with regard to it. And even reading the debate that Habermas sets up between himself and Luhmann, you're still not entirely sure what the stakes Why are. Why don't you know the work of Nicholas Luhmann? Well, I, it's it's just a, never he's a luminary of yeah. social theory. I know, but he, I, I just we, never really came across you're it. You're a podcaster. University. It's your job to be informed about these things. Systems like. theory is not really kind of big in the social sciences nowadays. So it's, you know, um, I, you know, bear in mind, I came, I came, you know, for me, it was like social constructionism was the hot thing, not systems theory. And, you know, you can say you can debate the merits and demerits of each and in, in respect to each other. But anyway, Anyway, the point being is that, you know, in part two, it was juicy because he turns outwards to talk about society. And in part three, it 
goes back into this debate. Um, so I, I think like Phil, it's not necessarily like I don't find it stylistically that difficult. And the sentences I've read longer sentences, you know, like uh, that there are writers who who are more elaborate and certainly more Baroque. It's just that it's very arid. And again, it's like the lack of examples. You're you're not really ever certain mm. if you know 100 percent that you that the image you have in your head corresponds to what Habermas is trying to communicate to you, which is maybe a lesson in communicative ethics. A eh, Jürgen, a eh? very very good. No, I think there is very a strength good. and a weakness to that to that to not giving any examples, which is that if you get on a roll mentally, you can put in your favorite example and you can you can build something quite interesting in in your own head almost. Um, but no, I think you know it's it is you know incumbent on us a little to to simplify or to kind of grapple with some of the political stakes of this and one thing which which i was thinking about a little bit was is this all about like are we living in a post-truth society this would be the kind of um headline grabbing kind of opinion piece way to put it um i'm not sure habermas would be the person to write that particular opinion piece but it's almost like is the structure by which we legitimate societies today completely independent of truth which is a you know a ten dollar word way of saying are we living in a post-truth society um if we are then that's kind of you know makes things easier for us discussing this book because we can say anything we don't have to be right or wrong but no, that's a bit, <laughs> i'm a not bit sure that's what that means <laughs> no but it's i mean that i think that's kind of what he's driving at right uh, the, the yeah. social structures are they are they dependent on truth for to socialize yeah. individuals is that how we can con- constitute society through yeah, our interactions it's or a not profound, it, it is a genuinely profound question um, I mean, I suppose the reason I flinched... My question or, or Habermas's no, Hab- question? No, obviously Habermas's question or yours. Oh, so close. <laughs> the reason I, listeners won't have obviously seen this, but the reason I flinched when you said post-truth, George, is only because I think, you know, the idea of all that post-truth stuff is limited to the discourse. Well... Which is uh, to say it's about, um, it's about kind of understood as a matter... It's understood as a matter of kind of um, people's relationship to media. Um, whereas in this context, you know, he's talking about, not about, um, uh, assimilation of information or whether we're assimilated to information or whatever, but rather socialization more broadly conceived, um, you know, which encompasses kind of social structures, psychological transformation, psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic concepts, as well as political integration and whether or not any of those processes have a basis in truth. And, you know, so it's just, I suppose it's a bigger, it's not unrelated to those questions of post-truth that we kind of people bat about today, but it's also a bigger kind of vista on them. Yeah, no, I mean, also post-truth is the way it's discussed. It's, it's personalized, whereas Habermas's concern is very impersonal. So it's about like, you know, today post-truth, yeah, it's a really are, important are these point, claims makers telling the truth? Yeah. Do they are they yeah. do they have the proper responsibility with regard to truth? You know, are, are people being suckered by the truth? But it's all about individuals with believing or telling untruths. Yeah. Um, it's about management in effect. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the kind of the give, I guess. It's a good point, Alex, because really what, obvi- I mean, uh, you know, it comes. It will come as no surprise to our listeners that post-truth is obviously kind of politically in- instrumentalized in fairly obvious and crude ways. Whereas um, Habermas, for all his faults, is trying to kind of grasp at a at a more kind of systemic, structural perspective. Mm. Yeah, just to um, maybe wrap this up and move on to the next point. There's a good um, new left review piece by Wolfgang Strake, which we can link to in the, the show notes. The return of the the repressed, which is very much on this and kind of you know gives some good 
um, tidbits like post post factual, and I'll even try and pronounce it in German. Post factisch uh, was the German word of the year in 2016, and so all of this had a bit of a, a rebirth around 2016. Post truth in that was an OED nominee for the English word of the of the year. I mean, we've talked about this sort of stuff quite a lot in 2016. Listeners might be able to um, infer the political context or or uh, think about that themselves. But yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, yeah, so to move on to, um, I guess, how Habermas starts all of this, um, he starts it with Faber. So, you know, obviously a key thinker on on legitimacy, on rationality as well. Um, and his concept of legitimation, um, Weber's this is, um, <clears throat> I think comes from, or the way Habermas puts it and i would you know broadly agree with this that faber has these three types of authority so traditional uh charismatic and rational legal um and should probably explain those a little bit actually shouldn't i so um charismatic is vested in an individual charismatic leader traditional these are uh, uh, the authority that comes from doing things the way that they've always been done and then this like characteristically modern is essentially rule following um, rational legal authority and this becomes through the dialectic of rationalization as Weber might put it um, accumulated in bureaucracies which become one of the defining modern institutions in in Weber's uh, terms but anyway to get back onto how Habermas uses Weber he says okay Weber's concept of of uh, rational legal authority is a decisionistic one similar to Schmidt's legal theory we've talked about um, Schmidt on this podcast quite a bit previously um, but the idea essentially here is that Faber starts with arbitrary decisions within a legal framework are legitimated there's no necessary relation to truth grounding them have I got this sort of about right because I think this is a you know it's an important point if if um, Habermas is correct in his, his reading of Weber because it's you know that's a pretty bold starting point all of authority is basically grounded in rules the rules are arbitrary to a greater or lesser extent and that's how you get your your authority there's no relation to truth there he wants them to be i mean uh, i mean uh, habermas wants them to be truthful obviously but he's um you know he's kind of uh, i think he's drawing attention to the problem of you know that weber correctly identifies a problem with modernity but a problem also with his theory that he's unable to ground or legitimize ground these questions in truth um, that it's uh, kind of famously, you know, it's the fight that happens bit, um, under the empty sky. Is that is that a Weber line? Yeah, it's not. It's not complete. It's something like we carry our we carry our idols into battle beneath an empty sky. Meaning, it's you know, there's no. It's been drained mm. of um, of meaning. authority and the gods and yeah. the meaning. Yeah. No, that's that's good. I mean, you know, and I think Carl Schmidt brings this even more explicitly to light because it becomes a kind of, I don't know if normative proposal, but we've seen this in the reading club last year where we discussed Carl Schmidt at the very beginning of the year in which, you know, sovereign authority is grounded in um, the ability and the, the, the one who makes the exception. Right. And I think then it becomes very clear what Habermas means in referring to decisionistic, um, decisionistic authority or decisionistic means where you basically through the act, it's a, you know, the, the, um, the deed, the act of the deed, the, help me out here. Wait, the propaganda of the deed. Is that what I was, uh, that's what I'm looking for. Uh-huh. You're very I'm not sure you've, hab- Alex, you've habermassed yeah. yourself. No, I don't know. That's not the word. You've I was, habermassed yourself. Um, you've taken a Schmidt. 
You've taken <laughs> a Schmidt all, all over this podcast, all over the discourse, and all over the pod. Oh dear. Um, anyway, no, the, the point... decision, the decision, the arbitrary, you know, yeah, decision arbitrary decision instantiates, arbitrary. instantiates. Yeah, the it order. kind of grounds, you know, the whole structure. Kind of is, you know, the bureaucracy is rational and orderly and efficient, and your Prussian civil servant will give you the right form when you turn up to the office. But there's nothing underpinning it all. Underpinning it all is just the arbitrary will of the sovereign. And so that's this kind of um, ultimately nihilistic and disenchanted vision of social order, which has no basis in truth that Habermas is trying to overcome. Yeah, I think there's something there about like that, like Schmidt and Schmidt is a kind of more spectacular version, right? It's the, the, the sovereign makes the decision and this is kind of like everybody's watching and then it's like oh my god i can't believe the sovereign just made that decision that's incredible oh you changed everything and but for habermas uh, for weber it's more like okay well yeah you have this there's still nothing behind it but it's like much more boring and bureaucratic but i guess that's the ultimately what they share and habermas says well there's an alternative position which i saw him as attributing to this um this this uh winkelman who i have to admit I've, i've never heard of um I don't know if either of you have. Maybe I'm missing out on the Winkelman. The, yeah, the, the Winkel Winkelmanites in amongst our listeners can um, upbraid us for this. Uh, we now have so Alex has taken a, Sch- a Schmidt on the podcast, and George has taken out a Winkel. Yeah, <laughs> listeners, okay. listeners, remember you're paying for this content. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, I, apologies for. Anyway, yeah, I go mean. On. I mean, so, there, I think, okay, I think there was a serious point here before I was um, um, rudely interrupted there. Um, yeah, so that there's essentially what is required in addition to this, um, to to legality, like you do, there there is some rule following, but there has to also be, in order for legitimation to be um, achieved, there has to be some sort of general consensus that the law relates to justice and so on to truth. So essentially Habermas is positing to be crude about it, I would say, um, a, an additional requirement for legitimation is not just here are these yes, rules right. and and here are these here's the way that they're legitimated either through this spectacular sovereign decision or this workaday bureaucratic rational legal authority, but you need this kind of general consensus, the Winkelmanite Vink, uh, position. Well, I told, yeah, like again, I, I was, what I was trying well, to reach for, for earlier. Faults, it's good. I mean, or not good, but I mean, for all his faults, you know, like the aspiration to um, to avoid nihilism, you know, particularly given how deeply embedded it is into German social science, um, you know, and German political thought. It's, you know, it's uh, the attempt at least is noble, even if the execution may be flawed. Well, so what I was reaching for earlier, which actually connects this up, which is that, you know, in, in Faust, it's uh, am Anfang war die Tat, you know, in the beginning was the deed, um, which is in contrast to the biblical, you know, at the beginning was the word, right? So it's like, that's the, I mean, Phil, you can't see this listener, but Phil's calling me a wanker for making that point. But um, the, 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 the point is, is that, you know, if the order is instantiated by, by deed, it becomes decisionistic, right? It's um, w- will ultimately is, is determining versus what something which is based on the word at the beginning was the word, like in the biblical sense is one which is based on truth and meaning, which instantiates the, the order. So I think that might be a, kind of a, a dichotomy though maybe maybe mm. that would be a dichotomy which we'd actually end up getting stuck on and and might obscure things i don't know no just just a couple of a couple of points on that the first thing that i thought was well you know isn't um isn't uh, faust 
um, you know, compo- composed of words. So actually the words come first, even in that example. And then I thought, no, that's just very facile. And mm, then I thought, well, actually, indeed. didn't the Bible come first? So isn't actually the word first because it was in the thing that was first in the earlier book? And then I thought, no, well, that's... Material, you know, it was the well. deed of Christians rather than the word of Christians, which maybe... Well, then you get to the yeah. dialectical position that every word is actually a, a deed. Indeed. So <clears throat> the word and the deed are the, are the same. So <laughs> let's, let's, um, let's crack on. Let's crack on. Yes. Yeah, this is just quite right. No. So I think, I think we can just take stock a, a little bit so far. I mean, you know, let's, let's boil Wait, it down. Did you say Haber masturbatory? <sighs> Good. <laughs> I should have done, but that, we that itself is um, a deed proving uh, the truth of the matter, because that is indeed Haber masturbatory to even say right that. i think i'm i think i'm to be blamed for for us uh, losing track a little bit here so to get us back on track um yeah i think it is worth you know just in pretty broad brush term summarizing that you have essentially you know weber and schmidt on one side it you know essentially the determination is is arbitrary. It doesn't require truth. And then Habermas and Finkelman on the other side, um, you know that there is a general consensus of the relation of of law to justice and to truth required for there to be legitimation and not just arbitrary power. Um, is is it fair to say that like mapping this onto today that you have the kind of the Habermas wants truth and he's a kind of a truth guy. He's like a you know, a, a gullible, um, credulous lib. And then you have the kind of the black-pilled arbitrary guys who are like, no, this is all, you know, the nihilists. And they're like, oh, actually, no, you're just uh, you're just a bit like, is this all a bit bait, isn't it? You know, come on, isn't this, isn't it, don't we really know what's going on? That it's, it's you don't need legitimation, you just need ultimately more or less masked force. Yeah, and, and indeed, maybe a position in between that, which would be the, well, it works, doesn't it? What's the problem, right? The kind of pragmatic, even functionalist kind of approach, which is just like, you know, I we don't, don't think there are any to... pragmatic functionists left. I mean, does anybody actually say things work nowadays? Well, that's a, that's that is obviously a fair point, but I think there's political yeah, defenders. Of history. Of the, there's that's political defenders history, of the current order who will say, like, you know, yeah. but we just, just maybe things are so strained that they hardly exist. But you know, I'm sure yeah. I'm sure you'll find people in Australia or uh, you know Finland who 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 say this or something. You know, uh, from Australia to Finland. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, those are, they yeah, are both quite practically that's, that's, minded peoples, actually. And that is that a is, wide geographic uh, swathe between the two. Yeah. No point. Point taken. Um, anyhow, so that's if if that's the kind of I think the, the starting point. He moves on to this um, chapter on the end of the individual, which I think has a pretty attention grabbing title, but I found the argument a bit more elusive than I was hoping. I mean, you can make, you can make some very interesting cases for the end of the individual, um, why this might've happened, social, political, um, cultural forces, which, which either eliminate the the precursors of individuality, whatever they might be, or, or homogenize people to the extent that there's no difference between A, B and and see um but that's not exactly the way that habermas of course proceeds it's a bit more through uh systems and all this sort of thing so habermas starts off by saying that the fundamental function of um world maintaining interpretive systems you can hear the habermasian uh, ring in what i'm saying there probably is the avoidance of chaos 
you know, but fair enough. Um, but then after a bit of a discussion on how democracy uh, no longer has the goal of rationalizing authority through the, you know, participation of citizens in will formation, which I think is, you know, something which we've discussed on this this podcast in slightly different terms, um, but rather facilitating compromises between elites. He then concludes that the end of the individual can be found in the end of a social, uh, logic of social reproduction that is based on norms that admit of truth. So kind of a few twists and turns in the way that he says that. But what do we make of this? I mean, is he right that this is that we have reached the end of the individual and does he have the process for it right? Um, I, I don't know if I can answer that question uh, even directly, but I mean, it is interesting that he, you know, is kind of engaging with the argument in, um, you know, his Frankfurt School colleagues, the dialectic of enlightenment, of kind of the eclipse of the individual, eclipse of individual liberty um, as, a, you know, the sort of dark side of the enlightenment. Um, and you, I don't know whether how, he's trying to obviously find a way to rescue rationality and the rational individual um, through his an engagement in discourse ethics, will formation, etc. That you might like ground legitimately uh, a social order in um, in something true and meaningful and democratic and universal. Um, and you know, I think that's a that's a an, an important and essential and uh, valuable, um, essential, necessary, whatever um, project. Um, but I think you know it, the the tell I think is is, is sometimes it, at least for me reading this is that like I'm not sure if I can find a positive answer, um, positive in the sense of um, like good, uh, to if world maintaining interpretive systems today belong irretrievably to the past, then what fulfills the moral practical task of constituting ego and group identity? And I think this Which is... Which page are you talking about? So Alex? this is on page uh, 120 towards the bottom of it, um, the last paragraph of page 120. If world maintaining interpretive systems today belong irretrievably to the past, then what fulfills the moral practical task of constituting ego and group identity? And it's true that, like, are there any world-maintaining interpretive systems today? I mean, in the way that kind of old-time religion did, um, or indeed, maybe for a while, that kind of socialism did, um, you know, maybe nationalism. But, you know, th there's a, the question of, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure even if nationalist well, ideologies can, can fulfill that. Habermas opted for human rights, right? I mean, that's also important. Longer, that he doesn't discuss this yeah. here. I'm not sure if that was at this stage or, or longer down the road, you know, if in, in, in the early 70s, he, he had adopted that position. But um, maybe we can leave that maybe to the, the, the fourth one, the fourth, you know, like next month's hmm. episode. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought this was a brilliant chapter, you know, like for a number of reasons. I mean, from kind of restating, restating basic positions, I mean, Hegelian positions, I think. Um, perhaps earlier, you know, but on the top of page 1118, the unity of the person requires the unity enhancing perspective of a life world that guarantees order and has both cognitive and moral practical significance. Yeah. So the intermeshing of individuality with social order and their interdependence, in fact, of both. I mean, it's a brilliant, you know, kind of it just undercuts or takes cuts the ground away from all these tedious debates that counterpose individualism to collectivism. And that we just simply, you know, continuously kind of mm, spin around yeah. in ordinary kind of um, everyday kind of political debate, you know, and, so, and which gets and gets parlayed into state versus market politics as well. Yeah, exactly. The tedious, that kind of tedious, um, those tedious questions, um, you know, so that's brilliant. And also then the way he flips it, you know, so he flips the kind of the 
um, when he kind of uh, makes the point about the decay of democratic theory. And I remember when I read this for the first time, because I'd read um, I'd read kind of extracts of legitimation crisis as an undergraduate, but not the whole essay. And so I read the whole essay more recently before we came to do it for um, for the pod. And when I read this section, I was on the one hand kind of I was um, impressed by its kind of gusto, but also um, saddened. I suppose there's no better word, but saddened by realizing just how how long, you know, literally decades into the 20th, deep into the 20th century in the past, we were still having these debates. But he makes this point, um, what you quoted, George, about the, um, you know, conventionally or one view of democracy is that it drowns the individual into kind of meaninglessness. Whereas here he makes a very powerful case that participation in collective will formation is a crucial precondition Mm. of preserving individuality. Right, and he just turns the tables on all those boring kind of technocratic understandings of democracy on page one, two, three. Um, the generalizable interest of all individuals, self-determination and participation, and instead he turns democracy into um, prosperity without freedom. So democracy yeah. in kind of the hands of people like Martin Lipset and um, uh, you know the result of like. Um, the critiques developed by Joseph Schumpeter and so on that took the consumerist view of democracy. What this happens then, it's no longer tied to, this is Habermas talking now, democracy is no longer tied to political equality in the sense of an equal distribution of political power. Political equality now means only the formal right to equal opportunity of access to power. Democracy no longer has the goal of rationalizing authority, and this is the quote that George gave earlier, rationalizing authority through the participation of citizens in discursive processes of will formation. That's the bottom of page one, two, three. Anyway, um, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, I guess you could maybe draw out um, a kind of a a point about the way that Habermas expresses himself, that even even when he tries to put as much like systems theory stuff around it, some of the basic kind of dialectical insights still mean that it's it is pretty good stuff. I mean, I would boil this like whole chapter down to that fundamental insight that he that he just you know that he puts forward or that he he builds on, which is the end of the individual and the end of collectivity or the end of something which is larger than the individual. That's the the, the process. Those two things being dialectically linked, not that the individual is kind of undermined by individual level things if that makes if that makes sense that there is a connection between the subject and the you know the, the part and the whole if, if you will i mean i think the what he has as these kind of collectivities or these holes or these kind of things are universalistic linguistic ethics which is not exactly what i would um <clears throat> focus on but i think that that kind of way that he is able to to kind of you know, connect the individual and the and the the, the um, something larger than the individual as as the requirement for the production of individuality. Yeah, it's pretty good stuff. It's, it's pretty good stuff. But I think uh, it's almost when I said I found the argument elusive. It's almost the way that he's expressing it. Um, kind of, I think dilutes a little bit that 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 fundamental insight. No, I'll just come yeah. in just because I, I think just to do full justice to this chapter, which is probably the most tractable one if that's a word um you know graspable one it's just that i, I this is me um meta talking i'm not actually yeah. saying this um that he sets out three um 
three kind of possibilities. And I'm, I'm trying to maybe help me understand this as well. Because he talks about, like, starting on page 122, A, Nietzsche, and um, basically a kind of nihilistic approach, which I think we've already hinted at. Uh, two, um, elite theory of domination, which is, again, is prosperity without freedom, which is the bit that Phil talked about. And then there's three, which is the end of the individual. Um, might be worth kind of trying to discuss out what he's trying to do there, because it's a bit where it's systematic and we can be systematic and respond in response to it. My suggestion would be if you're able to just um, cut what I was just saying partway through. Oh, I'm going to cut you. I'm going to cut the bit where you started on Adorno. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and just then do like a bleep, 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 bleep yeah. sound. And then maybe you just come in. Yeah, no, I mean, I won't even need it. to. I think it'll, it can flow naturally. Like, yeah. But I just, I'm just asking, do you know what I'm on about here? I, I think you, we should talk it through. Okay. Like, you should you set it out and okay. we can be, yeah, yeah. you know, we can be sympathetic and not just be like, oh, no, what are you talking about? I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, have, I have some notes on this, but I, I didn't bring them to my, my main notes. They're just on the page, so... Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's freestyle I'll, it. I'll bit. go ahead. Yeah. Let's think out loud. Well, Phil's playing just... his nose in the kitchen roll. It's just it's disgusting to see. So uh, maybe this is an opportunity, you know, looking at this chapter four of the end of the individual, um, which again is the one which I th is more kind of graspable, I think. And it might be worth looking at three kind of options that Habermas sets out. And we've already hinted at them a little bit. Um, you know, specifically with what Phil was talking about. Let me just try to set this up. So this is on page 122, if you're following along. Um, he starts off that the fact that the developmental logic of worldviews does not exclude the continuance of a mode of socialization related to truth may be comforting. Nevertheless, the steering imperatives of highly complex societies could necessitate disconnecting the formation of motives from norms capable of justification and setting aside as it were, of the detached superstructure of normative structure. So this is basically like saying, you know, we, we can have justificationless motivation. You, know, you have like kind of people's motivation is completely separate from the governing of, of society, right? And then um, if this happened, legitimation problems per se would cease to exist. A number of reflections from the history of ideas speak for this tendency, and I'd like to draw attention to them. So he, he goes on to do this. Um, just before I, I go on to list the three, I think... It might, I, what I think he's getting at is something that we can already glimpse more clearly today, which is that, you know, culture effectively provides meaning and motivation in kind of various fragmented subcultures or whatever, um, whereas the running of society continues on completely separately. And if we don't even care about politics, you know, we just live in our like little sub world, um, the, the legitimation no longer becomes a problem because we're not asking things of, of the state. Right. Um, this is this is a vision in some ways of the end of politics. Um, and he so the three uh, correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, but he then gives three examples, A, B and C. One, he identifies with Nietzsche, which uh, it's an idea that um, of, of cynicism, which has been around for um, over a century um, and where he uh, cites Nietzsche that that every belief, every taking for true is necessarily false because there is no true world. Um, so basically, you know, the, the fuck it, just do it. Will is all that matters kind of solution, which we already, which we already hinted at. 
Um, anyone who still discusses the admissibility of truth in practical questions is at best old-fashioned. Um, they're um, kind of Habermas satirizing this the kind of Nietzschean, cynical, nihilistic view. Um, oh, you care about truth? What a loser you are. You know, the, the how old-fashioned. That's one approach. The other approach is what he calls uh, the elite theory of domination, which identifies with Mosca, Pareto, and Michels, but also um, is identified with authors that Phil has already mentioned, Kornhauser, Lipset, Truman, and Ralph Darendorf. Uh, democracy in this view is no longer determined by the content of a form of life that takes into account the generalizable interests of all individuals. It counts now only as a method for selecting leaders and the accoutrements of leadership. Arguably where we are now with post-democracy. You know, democracy is just a way of filtering up leaders. It's a job interview, you know, as kind of technocrats love to portray it as. And uh, democracy is really just a means of making sure that no elite faction gains total control of the state. This is why uh, um, elites like democracy. Elites like democracy not because they believe in popular power, but because they don't want any alternative faction gaining total control of the state. It means that they still have access to the state, have means of negotiation, um, have ways of balancing things out, and that ultimately they can lobby the their representatives and, and executives and other elements of the state, non-representative elements of the state, um, and still get their, you know, have their interests seen to. That's why elites like democracy. And that's kind of one of the other kind of responses to this. And then the third one, which is uh, item C on page 124, is one that I don't fully understand. And I would be interested if, if you can... Um, he can help me out with this. He starts off by saying, in all the many symptoms of a destruction of practical reason to be found in the history of ideas, there is expressed a change of position in bourgeois consciousness, which allows of different interpretations. Um, and he goes on to kind of explain what some of these are, but ultimately it can be formulated in the thesis, the end of the individual. Um, and this, I guess, would be the, the, you know, the, the darkest conclusions of the dialectic of enlightenment, by Horkheimer and Adorno, in which the response to the kind of complete sundering of political system from normative structures and and, their, and thereby meaning that legitimation no longer matters anymore is a world in which the individual has ceased to exist um, and we're ultimately kind of endlessly manipulable. And again, it's an end of politics sort of vision. So I, I, if I'm it's summing up, apologies for going on so long, if I've understood this section correctly he's basically looking at three different ways that you have an end of politics one is just the Nietzschean answer of uh, emphasis on will on power um, because nothing is really true the other one is elite democracy or post-democracy as it's called where the state is open only to elite interests um, and it's not a vehicle for popular participation in any way and the third is one of of, of this sort of um a tragic view of, of the end of individual, the end of the individual, where the rational subject no longer exists and is no longer constitutive of, of society and politics. Is that right? Yeah, I I think so. I read the third one as, you know, drawing on dialectic enlightenment. It's not so much that the rational subject doesn't exist, but the reason has you know, it's a, it's a Weberian point. I would I would say that reason has kind of become completely detached from this like relationship between like uh means and ends and just has completely become means so mm. there is no possibility of politics because reason is so all encompassing and dominating that you have you know things like the holocaust which is on one sense rational they say in dialectic enlightenment because it's just a triumph of it's just a triumph of reason it's a triumph of administration it's a triumph of 
you know, don't edit this out of context because obviously, you know, this is they they mean this in a very specific way that the Holocaust is the pinnacle of of reason in one sense because it's just completely the ends don't matter at all. Yeah. But the instrumentality has reached its has reached its pinnacle, <clears throat> and there's no place for the subject. There's no place for politics in that um, context because it's so um, totalizing, and that's you know ultimately something they attribute to the Enlightenment and even back further than that to to Ulysses, um, if I remember that that book correctly. It's quite a provocative thesis, obviously, but that's I think that's how he's he's taking it that it's almost like the triumph of. Yeah the bourgeois consciousness is leads to its own undoing it's very bleak though because it's like there's no counter tendency to break free of that um and so we're left with a utterly administered um post-political society not even in a kind of technocratic way but in a kind of purely um and fully rational way that's that's yeah, kind of I think what that's, I, no, I think I, I think that, that I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, no, that that um, clarifies what I was trying to get at much better than you know. I think that that is exactly um, the right the right answer. The the I forgot that there's actually an item D. There's a there's a fourth one which is on page one twenty eight. Um, one can get so lost in in kind of the, the the arguments here that one loses track even of the the sequence of of items that Habermas has set out. But it, item D starts off, and this is a little bit kind of. I don't know, I don't want to say funny, but it's slightly ironic. Um, Until now, no one has succeeded in extracting the thesis of the end of the individual from the domain of the malaise and self-experience of intellectuals and made it into and made it accessible to empirical test, i.e., you know, so all this stuff about dialect of of enlightenment, uh, instrumental rationality, triumphing, um, like maybe that's true, Habermas is saying, but no one's able really to test it out because maybe it's just Adorno feeling really kind of like glum. Maybe that's what it's about. Um, that's what that's what Habermas is saying there. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a donor one Habermas zero. Like, I mean, it's such a ridiculous claim at one level. You know, like, I mean, where you know, like, what would count as an empirical test of a proposition like that? You know, well, and, yeah, you, you could you could have a survey and you could ask <laughs> enough people, are you an individual? And if they say no, then no individuals. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not but, sure that I'm not sure that would prove the point. at the risk of kind of commandeering what what is George's ship here, um, I know that we're going to discuss this question about the student protest where he makes this aside. And this is the point at which he does it um, under item D. And this is one of the other kind of possibilities for uh, a world where justification doesn't matter, um, legitimation doesn't matter, right? So if you continue down to the bottom of 128, he raises this idea of inauthenticity. A relationship institution or society is inauthentic if it provides the appearance of responsiveness while the underlying condition is alienating. And this is maybe... Yeah, that's, yeah. But that's Habermas quoting Etzioni, right? It is Habermas quoting Etzioni, but it, this is the... You know, Habermas is setting out these these kind of four items, and that, that's one of them. I think that kind of it expresses it. So why don't you take it away from from there, George? Yeah, no, I think it's time to to put down the the mutiny and for the captain well, for this episode is me to reestablish uh uh their place at the at the rudder of the sh- the good ship 
bunga. Uh, anyway, yeah. So I did want to pick up on this this point. The um, that Habermas mentions kind of almost in passing the student protests of previous years. So it's kind of an airy phrase, um, and he has this as an example of how. Um, just to quote, um, social conflicts can be shifted to the level of psychic problems that they can be charged to individuals as private matters. And conversely, that, quote, mental conflicts that are repoliticized as protests can be shunted aside, made into problems that can be administratively treated and institutionalized as proof of the extended scope of tolerance. So touching on some kind of Marcusean that's the right word themes there um is he right in his characterization of student protests i think it's you know it's quite interesting like that he he sort of you know we're talking about legitimation problems and their their logic and all this sort of thing and this is one of his examples perhaps people were crying out earlier for examples how do you like this one yeah, it's also interesting because famously it was the thing, or supposedly it was the thing in the kind of historical recounting of the Frankfurt School on which Habermas and Adorno disagreed. Adorno was skeptical of Habermas because Habermas was supposedly more sympathetic to the student protesters than Adorno was. And here Habermas is kind of distancing himself from them, or seems to be at least. I mean, that's the way I read it. Um, and also, you know, again, in kind of reading this, it just struck me like, hey, it's a, you know, it's a point that's been made, but. I suppose I always thought of it as a more recent point, the idea that 1968 was kind of a retreat from politics into the psyche. And here you have Habermas kind of making it, mm. you know, kind of very close to the student protests yeah, themselves. Yeah, like the most four years on from 68. Yeah. Probably you know, three whereas years, really. When I encountered that point, it was kind of in, you know, I don't know, people like, um, I'm trying to think now, kind of, you know, old 68ers kind of at the end of the 20th century or the early 21st century kind of looking back and almost by way of kind of, you know, kind of long-term reflection on what 68 was about, making those kinds of points, um, like Tony Judd's kind of histories and so on. And to see it made here in the early 1970s just reminded me how much these kinds of debates have been spinning ground for so long. Also how Habermas, you know, did, did see some things quite clearly, I guess um even you know relatively close to the to the time um to take it back to to adorno though who's a a thinker who i'm not necessarily always fully positive about um apologies to any adornians uh listening but there's a there's an excellent adorno quote which i do want to read at 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 length just because i think it's it's excellent um so adorno remarks um it is still too optimistic to think that the individual is being altogether liquidated. If only it were true that in his conclusive negation, in the abolition of monads through solidarity, there was embedded at the same time the salvation of the individual being that would become a particular precisely only its relation, only in its relation to the general. The present state of affairs is far removed from this. The disaster transpires not as the radical extinction of what has been, but because what has been historically condemned is being dragged along dead, neutralized, powerless, and pulls ignominiously downwards. In the midst of standardized and administered human units, the individual lives on. He is even placed under the protection and gains monopoly value. But he is in truth merely the function of his own uniqueness, a showpiece like the deformed who were stared at with astonishment and mocked by children. Since he no longer leads an independent economic existence, his character falls into contradiction with his objective social role. Precisely for the sake of this contradiction, he is sheltered in a nature preserve, enjoyed in leisurely contemplation. 
So it's a brilliant quote. I it's, mean, it is know, good, it isn't really, it? That, that from I Minimum mean, Moralia. There's no, who... there's no escape. You know, there is no escape. You can't even, you know, that at least the kind of extinction of the individual would kind of um, be a solution, even if a terrible and, un, you know, one that was not longed for. But he, you know, Adorno kind of um, blocks off that route. You know, like we're still bound up with the contradictions of the legacy of individuality preserved in systems that recreate them. Um, and- yeah, I just think that idea of dragged along, dead, neutralized, powerless, and not a definitive negation that allows something to replace it. There's yeah. a lot of, there's that, that hits me where I live, not necessarily with relation to the individual, but as a kind and, of yeah, and general characterization of it many hits things. you in your winkle. And it, it would, it would, uh, it would also, you know, it's a, a jabber hits at both those who would one-sidedly defend society against the individual, as well as those who would one-sidedly defend the individual, like libertarians might against society. You know, it's like now we're now we're left with no individual and no society, whereas you know before there was more society and more individual, which you know again to, putting it in really dumb terms, but you know kind of refer back but to what not, Bill said earlier, it's, like. It's not quite even that. It's not that there's no individual and no society. No, it's, it's like, yeah, it's right. It's not it's that you have both, but not the conditions for either. Not to get too like, ooh, la la about it, but that's essentially there is a yeah, there are yeah like, absolutely, yeah. There's no the conditions for persistence aren't there, but things still persist. So it's like it's all effed up, dude. Um, but no, <laughs> I just think I just wanted to to highlight that because. Yeah, I just think um, I, I sometimes am not too positive towards Adorno, but got to take your hat off to, I mean, to him on that occasion. How, how do we, like, it might be worth, like, just a question kind of off the top of my head. Um, you know, if, if, this indi- if the individual is kind of half dead, right, kind of dra- being dragged along, I'd probably a lot of the political conflicts and kind of culture wars as well that we see today are, can be maybe thought of in that light in the sense of an individual which still sort of exists and might rebel in defense of its individuality, but without being able to um, take responsibility for itself. So you have this sort of prickliness of like, how dare you judge me? You can't judge me. You can't tell me what to do, or you can't, of course the state can tell you what to do. That's accepted. But you know, you person on social media can't tell me um, that my way of living, my lifestyle is wrong. So there's a sort of defense of an individuality there you know, which, which, which retains at the same time as being completely a governable subject, you know, cause the state will tell you like, you know, wear your mask and, you know, whatever to do, pick a stupid COVIDian example, but you know, you'll be like, yeah, I'll go along with this. Right. Or like, you know, you have to um, accept all sorts of forms of security state invasions of privacy and whatever. And so that old individuality is gone at the same time as there's a kind of prickliness of, of a defensive individuality on a different train. I don't know if I'm kind of, talking you know kind of mixing up different things no it's a good question i mean i'm not sure we can answer it in the scope of a podcast about like the final section of habermas's book um but it's a good question you know how far kind of you could analyze the prism of all of this this malaise the malaise of contemporary politics through these um through the kind of the dead weight of these historical forms that are dragged along um and yet, you know, and so persist, despite the fact that they're not being actively recreated. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, hearing you say that, Alice, kind of did make me think about, like, there's a, you know, displacement almost. So you can't resolve the conflict between the individual and society to produce any meaning by either one pole or the other or their their interaction. So you just displace it onto 
culture. And so I'm not talking about culture wars. I guess it's more like, you know, that's that's where people, it's not, we talked about this earlier, and it's not like the running of society does not legitimate it or validate, not even validates the right word, but not produce the conditions for the individual. So you've got to like define yourself by your, your cultural taste or whatever. But, you know, yeah, as Phil said, this that's probably... I'm not even going to say let's let's do that next episode because that would just well, be but, but know, there's but I mean I think a solution could... to the problem of the individual next. Episode. No, I I, I don't mean you. that, but just in in terms of like finding the mediating links between this question of the individual and the question of legitimation, um, that might be something worth exploring next uh, next episode. Well, anyway, we'll put a pin in that. I'll make a note and come back to it. Make a note. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I've already touched on this. Um, so again, I guess a kind of another kind of general or thematic question just to kind of pick out a particularly interesting little um bit that Habermas talks about in inauthenticity and alienation so he has this discussion about how alienation might have been replaced by inauthenticity hmm do we what does he mean and do we do we buy this yeah so there's this intriguing idea that i mean i think people have probably listeners have encountered this idea of the politics of inauthentic politics of authenticity of a drive for authenticity i mean all the debate around cultural appropriation is all premised on a notion of authenticity right so it's a, a recurring trope i mean it's a recurring trope you know since the romantics um but which um comes returns again you know in the romantic revolt of the 1960s um and in the period after which is of course what what habermas is referring to and it's interesting that he says um Quoting uh, Amitai Etzioni, the sociologist, a relationship, institution, or society is inauthentic, inauthentic if it provides the appearance of responsiveness while the underlying condition is alienating. Um, so that's kind of already an interesting idea. So like the it, it it's inauthentic if it appears to be responsive. It appears like, hey, I care about you or I respond to you, but actually it's it's completely alienating. And he relates this to the kind of the student protests. Um, and how, um, how you know, there that was also a kind of revolt against um, inauthenticity. Now, there's this other point, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tie them together, so help me out, guys. This little jab, which is great, which he talks about the student protests and about how the degree of tolerance on the part of, and this is the Marcusean point, but kind of in, in some sense, the degree of tolerance from, from the top down has increased. So the headlines already report on university strikes and citizens' initiatives, regretfully adding without incident, which is to say repression was uh, expected and even, one could argue, to a certain extent desired as a way of giving meaning to the protest and to revolt and to show that the world was responsive. Hey, I'm making this demand of you and if you don't, and you should repress me. If you don't repress me, then are you not even responsive at all to me? Are you not paying attention? Um, and that's a kind of an idea which I think recurs through a lot of contemporary protests too, where so much gets focused and refocused around police and repression of the police. And that's where a lot of protest gains meaning today, unfortunately. And we can think about that through, you know, the Arab Spring, the occupation of squares, and so on. Anyway, what? how does that relate to the question of alienation now being? inauthenticity inauthenticity rather than the what? old form of alienation so he's saying i think so what the students 68 they're protesting against inauthenticity um so their provocations are attempted to draw out the kind of the um the hard hand of the, the state basically yeah no i don't think so he's not quite saying that because he's saying they're trying to expose inauthenticity 
So, which is, but the, so there is the lack of responsiveness is not the lack of authenticity, right? That's, I think it's, there's layers to the claim, right? So, you know, they seek to point out inauthenticity, but they don't get the response that they expected. Mm. I mean, isn't mm. that the point? I think, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I guess responsiveness has a slightly different meaning today. Like, it's like, do you want, a, um, I don't know, a, a government to be responsive? It's almost like this, you, you said we did, like, um, we're, we're responsive to your concerns. It definitely means the opposite today. Look, he says well, here, that, that is the inauthentic, the that is the inauthentic way. Has. It's the been a, it's management impulse. of of dissent. Yeah, sorry. The essential impulse is directed against the anticipated strategies of absorption. So like the, you know, the provocations of the 1960s, they're intended to avoid being absorbed by the system, right? These are supposed to be undermined, i.e. strategies of absorption are supposed to be undermined by imaginative provocations. I don't know, like situationist mm, stuff yeah. or theater in the street or I don't know, whatever that, whatever you want. By and large, this has not succeeded. The degree of tolerance has increased. So I think the point is there, right? That the um, that this what they're trying to do is to. It's not that the in, inauthenticity is the fact that the state doesn't crush them. They're trying to expose inauthenticity, and they fail to do so. Right. Mm. So it's um, it's kind of uh, there's more to it than simply. Um, the fact that lack, the absence of repression is not a demonstration of inauthenticity. The students are trying to kind of draw attention to the students are trying to draw attention to certain kinds of things, but um, it simply fails. It falls flat. Mm. Maybe this is something to return to in the next episode as well, because there's a lot. Yeah. There's something here that's quite interesting to explore. But I, I'm, I'm finding myself interpreting it. In, in in opposite ways, you know, simultaneously, which sounds like dialectics, but it isn't. It's confusion. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so maybe to want to, re to return to. No, no, I think yeah, I think we can we can put this in the in the to come back to pile if we if we have one. No, because I think it is an important like bit of political context, right? The um, Habermas is you know we've, we've talked about this quite a few times, but the the context of sixty eight as a like it's inescapable when you're talking about legitimation problems in in the early seventies, um, and so I think we should, and also given what we said before about the, the the paucity of examples, we should yeah we should return to this. And it's always interesting to compare sixty eight to today as well. So mm. there's, there's there's that to be gained as well. Um, well, that's that's all we have time for on on part three then, um, and that's the end of the book. It's there is no the end um, at the end of the book, which is well. Uh, th there is there, actually there is one there is one very short kind of the end, which I think is maybe a little bit of a cop out, where he he basically says like you know if we don't try if we don't try to find a kind of rational meaningful um, basis for for things, um, you know that we ba basically saying we need to continue the struggle against the stabilization of a nature like system over the heads of the, its citizens. Um, Right. So th th that's good. We, we need to fight against this alienating system um, because the price of not doing so will be the loss of old European human dignity. So, you know, I think ultimately he, he, he kind of 
trying to is trying to ground this idea of truth um, in his kind of discourse ethics um, and and rational will formation. Um, but what underlies that ultimately he kind of goes, well, you know, that's just human dignity. I'm not sure how convincing that is, um, but well, that's his. I guess you've end. got to. You've, I mean, it's, it's not surprising that his ultimate kind of grounding is in, in dignity because that's the basis of, of, I guess, an ethics of communication. You have to both recognize and respect um, your interlocutor. Otherwise, yeah. you can't have, but I, you can't but have that. And, but specifically old European human dignity. And of course, this is a reference to like a, a, a debate that he has with with um, with Lumen earlier who kind of is critical of this idea of like, oh, you know, the individual subject, rational individual subject, which we should care about. Oh, that's just old European kind of concerns. Or, you know, actually, no, he, specifically in relation to kind of class politics. But nevertheless, the, the kind of, you know, if we can if we can think of kind of classical Marxism and its concerns, Lumen is just kind of going, oh, that's just old European crap we don't we don't need to care about that anymore we need just like rational systems that work above people who cares yeah um, we have we have new we have new european crap we, now well new european <laughs> dignity so, yeah, yeah, that's that's what we've got um we but no yeah. i think there's there's a there's a lot to talk about in this book to kind of draw it all together consider the political context and we've done that obviously a little bit throughout but i think it's definitely worth returning to it as a as a whole and drawing out some of those um those themes and answering some of the bigger questions that we couldn't couldn't answer by reference to to one or two bits of of, of chapters or parts so yeah um yeah onwards and so, upwards for good shit bunga <laughs> uh, we're gonna yeah, so, we're gonna we're gonna ride on on the waves of ideas or the ship I'm is gonna sure crest the waves of ideas anyway uh, we'll we'll be back next month let us know what you thought of this. Um, we've tried to draw out kind of the most salient points. If there's other elements which you think we've missed and you think actually there's this really important thing in systems theory, let us know. But also, if you think that there's a, an important application of these ideas to today that we should be discussing, we're going to do that in episode four. That's what we intend to do. If you have any readings that you think actually, hey, there's this one guy who discusses a legitimation crisis um, in contemporary times and go, you guys need to read this let's do that we have some things in mind that we want to discuss but if you want to throw other things on the pile pile please uh do so because i think there's a lot of different directions we could take this it's the book itself is at a very high level of abstraction and tries to con contain a load of stuff but is also quite specific to its time times which are different to today's so um lots that we could potentially explore so let us know um we want to hear what you thought um and uh, we'll be back with you next time and uh, maybe just a reminder if you want to be looking forward if you're new to us uh and you're new to the reading club that we're going to be discussing probably something a little bit more uh tangible next time we'll be discussing well globalization i guess um adam smith in beijing um by the italian political economist giovanni arrighi that'll be in the kind of last three months of the year so looking forward to doing that uh, and we'll see you next time catch you later bye, -bye. <laughs>